0: My name is Jeffrey Bullock, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, Conversations on Leadership Matters. We, we've got for uh, our podcast today, Conversations on Leadership Matters, uh, a person by the name of Matt Warner, who in my own research is a very interesting uh, person, very interesting background, and I think is, is really going to offer a lot of insight and and uh, possibility for some very significant conversation with us today. Matt is uh, president and CEO of a think tank called Atlas Network, and uh, I I want to welcome you, Matt. I don't want to steal your thunder, so tell us a little bit about uh, about yourself and about Atlas Network.
1: Sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm. Uh, uh, we're based out of uh, Arlington, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. We're coming up on 40 years old as an organization, Atlas Network. And it's a nonprofit that was started to support other think tanks. It's kind of uh, even more unusual. Um, so it's, it's, it's a niche endeavor, but the goal is um, to support think tanks through grant making, training, networking, and awards, so that the field, the broader field of working at a think tank um is not a lonely one but one where you can learn from a lot of peers and that is what we try to do and the reason why that is important to us is that we see think tanks um these are organizations typically nonprofits who are working on uh research on all kinds of topics but the ones that we work with emphasize research on economics and economic freedom uh, the relationship between individuals and the state and the way that that relationship influences the kind of economic prosperity that can emerge. And so we partner with 500 think tanks in 100 countries that are working on topics that are relevant to them, but under this broader theme. And um, and our job is not to uh, control them or tell them what to do, it's to facilitate the network learning and to invest judiciously in their work um, to achieve that uh, increased prosperity that is so important.
0: Matt, that's, that's just fascinating. So, I mean, there's this, so <laughs> when we unpack that, there's so many different ways we can go with that. So, so you're, you're more facilitators, then you are originators is that a is that a safe way to look at it so so you you're you share information maybe by at your core as an organization being curious being good students being good observers is that kind of a safe way to look at how you do what you do
1: absolutely it's actually central to our strategy is um, decentralized instead of centralized leadership and decision making. So it's very important to our model that we don't have a franchisee uh, set up around the world where uh, we're making decisions from Washington, D.C. That's been done in other um, contexts and it has not been successful because uh, local leadership the knowledge that cannot be transferred from people in their own communities who live there who are from there um, is so uh, central to discovering solutions that are really going to work in context. And so um, we certainly do try to identify um, successful ideas, successful practices, and then re-disseminate those uh, among the, the network. But um, it is not in the spirit of um, expected compliance. It's for people, when we yeah. think of think tank leaders, we actually do think of them as entrepreneurs because they are um, creating something new that they need to be the ones driving.
0: They need to be driving, it sounds like in their own context. So what, what is uh, sort of maybe what works it's kind of a homely way to say it but what works in uh you know India in a in a in a small community in India may not work uh be the same uh strategy that works in a in a small community in in rural Ireland for example is that is that maybe a easy way to think about it
1: Yeah and I can give a an example um in uh, Burundi uh a uh, country in Africa with a fairly authoritarian government, uh, we supported a partner, uh, a think tank there on the ground um, that identified a series of changes that they thought would increase economic opportunity for uh, low-income people, particularly people who have what are essentially illegal businesses, very small businesses, and they're only illegal because Go business. Intended, perhaps intended, I don't know, but um, uh, really make it difficult because if you're not formal, if you're not a, a legal business, then you can't really ever grow because you don't have any legal protection for your goods. And in fact, the government itself is um, a potential predator, as local policemen want bribes to not take all your stuff or they take all your cash because they can, you have no recourse. Um, and so that success in in Burundi had a big impact on l- legal businesses registering.
0: Well, that uh, exactly. If you're too successful, you're you're suddenly above the radar rather than below it, and it, and it can all end. So that sounds like, I mean, I in, in a little research I was doing, I, I came across just a fascinating concept uh, uh, that that uh, atlas uses that you use called uh, development economics so what you're talking about essentially is 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 development economics is that right
1: yes it's it's the way that um it's the study of how uh, societies grow economically and all of the different um challenges associated with that because each society has its own history its own culture its own uh, norms, the way that people expect other people to behave. Um, and so all of that has to be taken into account. And the broader uh, field of development economics, which is a very broad mainstream field, you have a lot of people working, um, uh, whether it's for their their country's version of USAID um, or some other sort of foreign uh, relations uh, endeavor. Development economics is a debated uh, field, as most fields are, because there's different approaches. You may know the name Jeffrey Sachs. He wrote the book uh, The End of Poverty, and he had a very top-down approach, um, a very uh, centralized decision-making approach to solving poverty. And he's most famous for the Millennium Villages Project, which was a $300 million project over 10 years uh, uh, in in mostly Africa uh, where he said what we need to do is we need to solve all the problems at once. We need to solve education, we need to solve health, we need to solve uh, better crop yields, et cetera. And there's a book, if anyone is interested, wr- written by a journalist who was at first favorable towards what Jeffrey Sachs was doing. But the book she wrote about it ended up being a real, a real takedown. She really pulled the... Um, curtain back and revealed how uh, um, unsuccessful this was, and in fact, created a lot of injustice in the way that they went into communities, uh, disrupted everything that had been working with their own ideas, and left them worse off. And so in development economics, one of the key things that people are now trying to figure out is something I call the outsider's dilemma, which is, as an outsider, you want to help, But sometimes when we try to help, we actually make things worse because we are outsiders. And so how do we engage the uh, local knowledge, not just uh, in terms of um, having a couple meetings with the community and then uh, letting that influence what we're doing in their community, instead reverse that and come in and support people who already have their own ideas in that community and they're going to be much more successful. They're they're going to uh, a lot of um, the term used is sticky. We want institutional change that sticks. So how to achieve sticky change? Meaning it it stays successful for a long period and helps this community achieve permanent prosperity. That's what we're after.
0: So that's almost. Um, I, I know you wrote a piece uh, titled uh, "Cut Foreign Aid to Help the World's Poor." So that's uh, in in relationship I think to the phrase you just used, the outsider's dilemma so uh, you were talking a little bit uh, about a Ugandan village and introduced new uh, kind of methods and crops for farming is can you talk a little bit about the outsider's dilemma and and this piece you wrote and just say a little more about uh, making things stick I think that's that's a really important piece for our, our audience to understand
1: yeah, so that that particular example in in Uganda, uh, uh, you know, researchers from New York City and Washington D.C. decided that uh, this village called Ruhira, uh had it, it was a village of uh, seven thousand farmers, and uh, they traditionally uh, grew uh, a type of banana, a little more starchy, um, kind of like a plantain, and this was a staple of their diet, a staple of the, uh, you know, the community commerce, and um, they have been growing it for a long time. And uh, the researchers from afar said, what you ought to be growing is corn. You'll get more uh, crop yield if you use corn, and uh, we're going to give you uh, money so that you can switch your crops from bananas to corn, and then you'll be richer. Well, Uh, The village was uh, enthusiastic and excited. I mean, here are these foreigners bringing, uh, they spent about $300,000 on the project. And um, they did, in fact, increase crop yields. And they had, you know, a bumper crop of uh, corn. Uh, But the problem here, and this is when we get to the complexities of trying to do centralized economic planning, is uh, there was nothing to do with the extra corn. Um, there, the village was too remote to uh, get it to markets where there was even any demand for corn. Uh, they didn't have anywhere to store it. Um, and so it ended up rotting and attracting a rat infestation to that village. So what started with a sentiment from the villagers of enthusiasm and gratitude for these foreigners coming in, they ended up resenting this because they were worse off. They had a rat infestation. They didn't have the bananas that they usually grew.
0: And um,
1: and and that's the, that's the difference between uh, a model where entrepreneurs take on risk using their own knowledge about you know uh, whether something's going to work. Not that that entrepreneurs are always successful, but the ones that are solve these. is not making their own decisions, uh, that I think is unjust, because the researchers who pushed that, I'm sure they were well-intentioned, I don't think it was malicious, Um, they're no worse off after this failed experiment, but that village is. And so we have to align decision-making, and that's why freedom is important, the freedom of the individual, because that's a hedge model for dispersed decision-making so that we don't go all in on one centralized decision and then ruin everybody's life, right?
0: Right. Well, it's it's uh, I, I'm fairly uh, moderate to conservative given the the work that I do or the 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 space in which I operate in in higher ed. Certainly, uh, certainly the way higher ed is perceived today and. You know, one of the things that that I think a lot about, in just in in terms of capitalism, is, you know, there is a, a school of thought where capitalism is operated, you know, by greed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I tend to think of capitalism as 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 more of enlightened self-interest. And uh, when you talk about um, kind of, uh, you know, who bears the cost of failure, there, one of the beauties of of I think an organic Uh, capitalist system is is that the the people who are taking the risks are also the people who are going to bear that cost of failure so they're they're more uh, circumspect uh, more considerate uh, and sort of more localized in their knowledge of executing the plan than than hi we're here from uh, you know X Y Z and we're here to help you I mean is that part of what you're talking about here part of am I following you okay
1: Yes. I mean, uh, so our organization is uh, is nonpartisan and um, uh, and and we just really are. It's not even something we discuss. We have a very diverse uh, staff. Uh, Our mission is less about um, this. You know, the various public debates over, uh, you know, is capitalism bad or good? It's more about what actually works to increase cooperation and value creation. And so yeah. it's instead of it being a left versus right debate, I think it's really a centralized decision-making versus decentralized decision-making. And uh, um, to use uh, an academic term, which I think is useful, uh, is the idea of polycentricity. That is, multiple hubs of decision-making is a model by which Uh, optimal outcomes can happen not it's not perfect but it's as compared to what and so the the things that i think get confused when we just discuss capitalism is uh is whether we're defining capitalism as uh you know pro-business Of an economy, and so I call this now uh, the Keynesian excuse. Because if we look at the uh, the 2.2 trillion dollar package, the the reason they can, part of the reason they can get away with completely unrelated uh, expenditures in here that have nothing to do with the purported reason for the for the package is this Keynesian idea that it actually doesn't really matter where the money goes. We just need to get the money out there. And that's actually absurd. It really does matter where where the money goes. There's a difference between uh, value creation and, uh, and either no value creation or um, destruction. And so
0: how you spend your money,
1: whether you're a government or a person or, or a business, uh, does have consequences.
0: Well, it does, and I wanna—I do want to talk about uh, uh, not just the last uh, great recession, but also uh, this CARES Act and the 2.2 trillion. But before I do that, I think what I—I I, want to just—I think move as we move into that. I want to just clarify for our local audience what I think you're talking about here in in terms of. Uh, sort of local localized contextualized economic uh, development and the way that we would experience here in Dubuque Iowa or at least I should say the way I experienced that here, so is have served for many years on an economic uh, development Association and over and over again um, it, it's it's fascinating to watch the contrast Uh, between what what might be understood as kind of a a big-box entity uh, and their investment in uh, our local community and a local entity uh, and its investment in uh, our local community so um, over and over again at least from my perspective in economic development in a place like Dubuque, Iowa, in a state like Iowa, uh, it, it really is interesting how those uh, businesses uh, with local roots, with, with local origins, uh, not only have a sustaining power but also reinvest in the community philanthropically through through uh, the Community Foundation, through various other supports of nonprofits in ways that that honestly most of the big box uh, stores uh, corporations just don't do is that is that something you've picked up in your research uh, as well
1: um, well there's a, a book that's actually been updated uh, more recently uh, the first version was, uh, I believe in the 90s called good capitalism bad capitalism and uh, it's a comprehensive survey of not just how different economies are doing, but what is the makeup of those economies as a function of uh, firm size or the size of businesses. And where we're most successful is when we have not just big companies or not just small companies, but we have a healthy mix of big, medium, and small. And I think, look, we all have preferences, and that's fine, that's good. We all have preferences. The point is, Um, how do we get to express those, those preferences in a just way? Um, one of the most efficient and effective ways to express those, those, uh, preferences is through consumer patronage, where we choose to shop. And, uh, one of the challenges is when we have sentiments around, uh, local businesses versus what we perceive to be outside businesses, um, we can certainly favor, and we don't even need to to explain why, lo- local businesses. But the question is, how can we justly express that preference? Is it by making sure that we ourselves only patronize a local business, or is it through using uh, the uh, power of government to prevent others from expressing their uh, preference through uh, uh, uh shopping at, at those places. And I think that's where it gets really tricky. Um, I actually think there is a lot of change that happens not through leg- legislation, but through culture, through the way that we um, kind of update our preferences and what we think is okay. And I think uh, mo- movements that have um, pointed out some of, of, of the arguments you've just made about the benefits of local businesses through persuasion – uh, I think that is an effective way to, to change the way people perceive uh, where they want to shop. Um, at the same time, um, there are no doubt, there's no doubt that there are great efficiencies that come from successful, they have to do it well, uh, larger uh, uh, companies, economies of scale, etc., and that has real impact on the pocketbooks of very low, low-income families that can really make the, the difference between what they can afford. So to me, a free market or a, uh, a model of capitalism says, uh, uh, let's be very careful about when we use government power to decide how uh, or, or to express our preferences in a marketplace. Because when we do that, we are, um, I think, undemocratically taking away other people's opportunities to vote with their pocketbooks in terms of where they like to shop.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I see what you're saying there. And I think, um, I think, uh, my, my question for, at least from my perspective, wasn't so much, uh, I wasn't trying to set up an either-or dichotomy, and I think your your response is it's more of a of a both hand, which I, I I I agree with. I think one of the things I've noticed in in my work in economic development is to get back to your earlier word, there is a tendency, uh, specifically in times like these, whether it's the recession or uh, now whatever is the the fallout from from this COVID-19. There's a there's a, a stickiness, a itiveness to uh, organic uh, entrepreneurs, even in communities like Dubuque that that has a, a lasting quality to it, and I I think that lasting quality is because of some of the things you're talking about. It's about relationships. Uh, it's about a lot of it. Sometimes it's about family. It's about community and civic pride. I mean, it's just an interesting it it is its own different culture is is what i'm suggesting i would imagine if that's happening here not only is that the case all over the country but i suspect it's it's also uh uh one of the cultural commonalities across the world is is that a fair assessment in your experience sure
1: sure look uh there are if if the efficiency gains from a big box store, let's say you know, let's let's stipulate that um, you can get some of the same goods or a, a wider choice of goods for a slightly less, a slightly smaller price, uh, many will prefer to pay a slightly higher price in service to uh, the the values they have around um, uh, the civic sense of, I know these people, I trust them. I like to shop with them. Um, I know they're going to be around and I can, I can be part of that, that relationship. There's nothing wrong with any of that, but at the same time, uh, that requires that, that you have the discretionary income to make that choice. So I, what I'm, I am I, I, I have no problem with that. I just also get nervous if we uh, make try to ensure that that only those exchanges at the higher price are allowed. In which case, then people who don't have a choice—that um, I think is unjust.
0: Right, right. Where I, I think you're right. I, this is a this is a fascinating line of discussion. So in in kind of classically Midwest Iowa here. Um, kind of the paradox of what we're talking about here is is and, and the classic example and I'm not railing on Walmart here I, Walmart provides a great service at a very low cost for a lot of people I think over the last 20 or 30 years however uh, you know and we, you've read about this and we both have just uh, the, the consequence of that choice at a very low price for a lot of smaller communities is it affect the 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 economic death of the, those main streets because the uh, hardware store doesn't exist anymore the the clothing store doesn't exist anymore and and it it just is kind of the way I guess things go is Is that how you would describe it or or is there? The, the, does the death of sort of that hardware store also create another kind of opportunity? Is that just the way our our system works? How do you think about that in Midwest, in the context of Midwest America, small-town America?
1: Uh, well, I think with, whenever that happens, what I first think of is um, you have to imagine all of the quote-unquote votes that were cast. In relation, and I don't mean votes for uh, elected officials, I mean votes for which stores they wanted to stay. Now, you could say people by virtue of where they shop. So, in those cases, um, you do have people who want to keep the local hardware store alive and they're willing to um, pay more for that and they're willing to have less collection. Um, but if there's not enough, and, it's, and it, what determines if it's enough is simply a matter of, of economics. And so people have to realize that all of these decisions, we, we can make some political decisions and pretend that there aren't economic consequences and that these things don't cost money, but it, whether a hardware store survives is a function of, of uh, to, total revenue and total cost and whether there's a profit to be made or whether there's a... Um, there's a an endowment from a philanthropist to keep it going. And so all these things have monetary consequences and the and the question is, okay, well who pays? Um and one of the most important things about uh Hayek's work, Friedrich Hayek's work, is uh to help us understand that prices are information. And when we try to control prices or we try to artificially influence them, all we're doing is hiding information from ourselves. Prices tell us what someone is willing to sell something for. And if it doesn't sell, then that tells the seller that it's too high. And if it's too high, but he can't manage to lower it without losing money, then that is not a good that that we should be uh, uh, trying to continue because it's suboptimal and it's costing money to the economy.
0: You know what? one way to think about that too though is is uh, I think the hardware store is a good example years ago when we were just starting off and we had our first home I, there was a local hardware store and then then one of these uh, larger well-known uh, very large well-known stereotypical phrase is is big box stores uh, <laughs> appeared within a sight line of this hardware store and I can remember learning how we were I think I was working on the toilet or something like that trying to figure out fix it and uh, so I'm going to the local hardware store and getting this one little piece and he's walking me through this and uh, you know I he said now go back to your house and do this so I went back and I did it incorrectly and I came back again and I explained what I did and then then we were talking and I said aren't you a little worried about what's going on down the street and he said well no he said I'm not I said how can you not be worried about your business when you've got that kind of competition and he said because of this and of course the, this was he was he was taking the time to walk me through uh, the fix of the toilet and I think that that store is still in business for that reason so that would be an example I guess of maybe uh, a value-added uh, of information, to use a, a Hayek's phrase, your use of Hayek's phrase, kind of a value add of information that would allow me as a consumer or motivate me as a consumer to pl- pay slightly more, but I'm getting more for what I'm spending. Is that kind of how you see things?
1: Absolutely. I think that's a great example of look. We all we all have preferences, and it's up to us to val value those the way that. We we find value in them, and so uh, there, there are it, it, big box stores are not you know objectively better than all uh, businesses. They're just both uh, offering some combination
0: of products
1: and services, and we as individuals can seek out and make determinations about what uh, what we prefer. Now, if not enough of us prefer a certain Service p- provider, it may not survive, but it's it. Uh, that's also a signal, you know. I mean, that's that's uh, how we move forward and get more optimal, and that's also how um, it inspires innovation. Because uh, you'll start to see that people who haven't had competition, when they start to have it, then they can uh, push themselves to get creative about. Okay, how do I position us? Uh, and market us, uh, and what maybe different products or services can I provide to differentiate myself, so that uh, con- consumers continue to uh, 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 to patronize us. And when we do industrial policy or government policy that tries to preserve uh, one snapshot of where we are in an economy and pretend that that can just endure, we're we're preventing innovation. We're preventing change. Forward and optimum, and it's never perfect, but it's always on its way.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's why I like the phrase enlightened self-interest. Uh, so good entrepreneurs are always are always identifying ways to, to innovate, to be even more relevant and attractive. and, and that is often uh, snuffed out. Uh, if that incentive to, to uh, doesn't exist to change and to innovate, and and in, a, in a, <laughs> at least in my business, uh, such that it is as we refer to ourselves as a business, um, you know the fear the, the the fear of failure is a great motivator. It really is. It's also a great innovator, and. Um, yep. I, I you know I, I we try to keep that in mind here even as we're a, a, a university and so I want to talk a little bit about you, you've invoked uh, Hayek and I would uh, assume by extension uh, 20 or 30 years later Friedman and kind of that whole divide uh, uh, with the Keynesians and and so you've got that kind of political uh, economic sort of divide and You know we haven't talked much yet about uh, the CARES Act and the 2.2 trillion uh, whatever we want to call that uh, through the federal government Um, but I mean it does beg the question what what do you see as as in your project uh, to be some of the longer-term challenges of this shorter term solution called the cares act it may be a necessary solution it may be a shorter term solution it may be a great solution I'm not I'm I'm being agnostic in asking the question I'm just as someone who thinks about this kind of thing regularly and now as we experience this this massive massive influx of <laughs> cash if you want to call it that, of economic stimulus from the government. What, how do you think about this? What do you, what do you think about the longer-term challenges are, are, that are going to be as a result of this?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think one thing right off the bat. I saw a very helpful meme uh, that someone had posted that was a Venn diagram. It was three circles. And uh, one said, um, people who are concerned about coronavirus, The other one said people who are concerned about the uh, growth in uh, 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 authoritarian power in government. And the third was people who are concerned about um, uh, an economic slowdown on low-income people. And the person posting it said, I'm in the middle. I care about all three. And, And it was a way to sort of remind us that our politics tends to make us think we have to be one thing what are are you this or are you this are you for this or you for this well all three are important so uh in looking at the cares act i look at it from the point of view of of first understanding that this is complicated understanding that we're learning as we go um you don't have to be someone who is uh you know in, in in order to care about the economic shutdown it doesn't mean you have to be dismissive of the health concerns that are going on, um, and in order to care about what um, and uh, what executive power and what uh, congressional power, uh, what comes out of this, um, that doesn't nor does that mean that you're dismissive of the health concerns. So, the the reality is. There's a long-standing pattern that, in a crisis, as uh, Rahm Emanuel said uh, uh, after the recession, you don't let a crisis go to waste. It it means politicians know that there is this uh, honeymoon window where scrutiny is at bay, where you can get a lot done very quickly. That it, if you're not in a crisis, each little uh, proposal is going to be uh, dissected ad nauseum and scrutinized and debated, etc. In a crisis, I mean, the reason they were able to do this so quick is there are so many things in here that they were just already wanting and hadn't had the, the uh, public battles yet, and then they just quickly got it all done. And that is alarming because um, number one, like you know, previous large bills, uh, nobody knows every little thing that's in it nor do they know the implications of it so i think i think it comes down to a few principles of first when we make big bets right when we centralize uh uh, decisions and
0: you know i saw a lot of
1: criticism of like why are some states shut down and and others aren't Well, I don't know the answer, but I do see
0: some value
1: in having a differentiation of approaches because we know so little, and uh, it wouldn't be good to mandate certain people to try certain things, but to let people try certain things. Therein lies the difference. Instead, if we say we want one president to make a federal decision that takes care of all of us, and then to make one decision on how to uh, then counteract the impacts of that um, we're stepping outside of, of, of politics that's just as a decision-making model and I know you uh, are an, an expert on, on leadership but anytime you centralize decision-making too much uh, what you're doing is you're not allowing yourself any out. you're going all in on one thing and you're not hedging you're not giving experimentation a chance to inform and accelerate learning. Uh, so that you can pivot to what to what is working. And I just think um, some principles that could be applied here is to be uh, more specific uh, and to use existing me- mechanisms, not create new bureaucracies that no one knows how to run yet and absorbs a lot of time and money, and instead um, just focus on the problem in a way that allows experimentation. And I think you know we're all learning very quickly from from different countries and different states, and that's a good thing because, uh, of course, what we want is an optimal answer, and an optimal a- a- answer takes all three of those circles in the Venn diagram into account.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, certainly I'm, I'm sure I'm older than much older than you, but this is this isn't anything we've seen in my lifetime and in. in you know, the, the pundits and, and scholars among us can, can say if, tell us if we've even seen anything like this, uh, you know, on a, on, a, on a ratio basis like this in, in the, the Depression. Uh, I, I, you know, as I think about this uh, and I start to write about this, one of the real challenges for me uh, with COVID-19 is and I, I had a colleague point this out to me the other day uh, I won't name the state but a, a certain state had had uh, uh, three deaths from COVID-19 which is of course a tragedy uh, but they also that same state also had nine deaths by suicide uh, from from people who who'd just found out that they would lost their jobs and uh, that that was the source given for uh, for their death by suicide, and and as I look a, uh, at this, you know, our our governor spends a lot of time. You know, every day we get an update on the number of deaths and you know the number of cases, and it's a little. I'm old enough to remember the the Vietnam era broadcasts where we had the death counts every night uh, on television, but what I what I think about are You know what are what are we doing how do we think about how do we support uh, massive numbers of individuals who are without work and what that does to a person's identity to the the family units well-being to the well-being of the community that I, I don't know that that's really being talked about a whole lot in in the upper echelons of of uh, government leadership are, are you hearing much in that regard or am i just this kind of worrying about things too much
1: no i think it's been um uh underrepresented uh, or misrepresented we are not choosing between in in our public policy response we are not choosing between wealth and death um there was a lieutenant governor uh, the lieutenant governor of texas and I don't want to pick on him and I, I you know, assume good intentions and, uh, and this was a heartfelt comment, but he got on television and said, Hey, I'm over 70. I have grandchildren. No one asked me if I was willing to, uh, sacrifice the, uh, American way of life and our, our economic strength, um, in order to save my, my life. I, I would rather take my chances because uh, I care about my grandchildren's future, etc. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I think w- what, what would be better said, what the reality is, is that the choice is not between wealth and death. The choice is between mortality and mortality because there are consequences to, to, to economic shutdowns, and the people who suffer the most are disproportionately uh, low income and um, and other other factors. So um, people have to understand that um, policy decision making is complex, and that's why it's better if it's rule based and not. Um, you know, we don't pick a company and give them money. We create rules because uh, uh, that. That is a proper respect for the complexity of what's going on and gives people the chance to make the best decisions for themselves and, them fa- and, and their families and their businesses.
0: I, I, I appreciate that uh, very much, Matt, and I I, uh, I know we're running out of time here. I, I want to talk a little bit about, and this would be related. Uh, to your work, and I think probably a, a fairly good segue to the this, this last part of our conversation uh, But as we think about poverty uh, Maybe here in our country of course You're familiar and I'm familiar lots of folks are familiar with the work of uh, Charles Murray and, and Robert Putnam and and Arthur Brooks and, and the whole gang and um, You know they as as they write about poverty they they also there's a strong connection between poverty and and community and uh, both the formal and the informal sort of connections in in community through families through churches through synagogues through you know YMCA's and boys and girls clubs Uh, what um, how does all of that work together or does all of that work together in your opinion as part of the solution maybe the organic solution to um, to helping kind of ease just the, the the atrocity of poverty poverty on these these uh, communities on our communities is is that sort of the, the one model in contrast to you know the federal government coming in and throwing all kinds of of money at uh, at a particular community. What is that really the either or dichotomy there, or is and that's our reality, or is there is there a both and solution here? What what's your sense? Do do Murray and Putnam and those kind of have it more right uh, than 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 Roosevelt? How do you how do you see that?
1: Well. Uh They certainly help us understand how important uh, community is. How important, uh, you know, we are social social beings.
0: Socialization and uh, and the ways that at the the margin,
1: tight knit communities solve so many problems. Um, organically. Uh, organically. And so that's, and so very, that's very, very important. Very, very, uh, let me uh, throw out one throw more one name, uh, more uh, name that, that I've become I've very uh, influenced uh, by and excited about and recently uh, got to meet uh, him a, is a, 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 guy, a guy, guy named Mauricio, Mauricio Miller. Miller. He was a MacArthur uh, Grant Prize winner and was a political appointee under President Obama. He had been working in low-income populations as a social service provider. Uh, in, in Oakland, Oakland California, for, for a number of a number decades. decades. And, and he has, he has his, his experience, experience uh, developed some developed really important, important insights about this very question. question, which is, which is um, uh, how can, and this uh, is and where, this the, where the, outsider the outsider dilemma applies, applies uh, in, uh, uh, this in this context as well, as well. How, can how can you can help, help uh, uh, communities prosper? prosper when the viable path to their prosperity is more a function of their community behavior than it is any government program. And so what he has pointed out is uh, that what we need to do, much like the way Atlas tries to discover and support the initiative of locally-led organizations think-things throughout the world, he works to support the initiative taken by communities um and in individual families and it's much more successful because they are driving that that change and he actually has a rule for his staff which is if you help one of our clients that is one of the uh, low low income families uh you're fired and the reason is because it's so important and it's so um re- uh, relevant to their path to prosperity uh for them to not become Distorted by what we think they they need, and um, and it's really a fascinating insight uh, because it actually kind of you know the the caricature debate. It's called the the, the bootstrap myth. You know, historically you might have con- conservatives saying, "Look, people are poor because they don't work hard, and what they need to do is pull themselves up by their bootstraps and carve a path to to, to prosperity." And what maybe people uh, on the left will say is uh you are insane that you're you're privileged other people don't have those those advantages and you rely on a lot of social capital that helps give give you what you have you 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 didn't earn that right so but the reality is uh, it is true that people who are doing well have relied on social cap- capital and that's important it's also important in low come low-income communities and a government program is not social capital. And what Mauricio Miller discovered is that it actually undermines the social capital that will pay off for them. So what we need to do is support their initiatives, their ideas, their uh, plans for achieving
0: prosperity. You know, Matt, that, I mean, that's really... um... I'd need to. i love to meet this guy as much as I'd love to meet you and so uh, <laughs> we, we're right about on our hour and I'm I'm wondering there's so much more I want to talk about and then we haven't talked about and I'm also uh, cognizant of the fact that you've got four children that are banging on the door of your car right now I'm sure uh, <laughs> trying to get to see dad and uh, but I I really I sincerely appreciate you being available, and I, I could, I would love to talk more with you. And I'm, I'm hoping uh, we can get you to campus sometime. When, when we'd love to have you here. I'd love to feature a series of uh, public lectures and, and invite our community to to hear from you and learn from you. And, and I hope you'd be amenable to that invitation at some point in the future.
1: Oh, I'd be absolutely honored. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that idea
0: yeah now there's a there's a lot to talk about here i'd, I'd love to get you in front of our students uh, um, i'd love to get you in front of our community um, we we try to be a place um, we're, we're, we're an unconventional university uh, we, we have enormous number of our students uh, uh, you know over half of our students are pell grant eligible um, they is one way to look at socioeconomic strata, is and um, and yet I'm so um, I'm proud of the way that that these students are earning an education and and going out and doing something with it. Um, what we have found is with many of our students. Um, from from challenge backgrounds it's it's often the case that they're um, the highest functioning member of of often and sadly sometimes a very dysfunctional uh, unit and um, and so what we try to do is create the space for them to to thrive and facilitate an opportunity for them to grow and to Expand upon their God-given uh, abilities, and uh, it's it's really been it's a privilege to be able to work in that space and to uh, to follow along. I've been doing this, you know, for almost a quarter of a century now. So students that that came, uh, you know, with nothing, uh, and to see and follow what they've done with their lives over the last 20 years has really been, been fun and meaningful for us. And I'd like to be able to introduce you to those stories and uh, on the beginning end of, of that journey and now as the inner mid-careers, because I think, I know they'd be an inspiration for you as well. So, uh, Matt, thank uh, you, yeah, thank you.
1: Yeah, I'd be very in- interested in learning more and getting to know what, what you guys are doing out there. So thank you very much.
0: I'd like to thank you for listening to Conversations on Leadership Matters. Go to jeffbullock.com to subscribe. Also, please take an opportunity to share or forward this blog with your friends or family. We appreciate it.